Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Hope you enjoy the new microphone quality, and that the wait was worth it. Last episode, we saw a scandal enveloping the Ashanti Empire. After a disastrous military expedition into the neighboring Daomey Kingdom, the unpopular Ashanti Hene Kusi Obodom was impeached and with no heir apparent to take over his position. This week, we get into the dirty weeds of Ashanti politics, as the Ashanti elites and common people alike face the challenge of having to elect a new king. Season 3, Episode 9, The Kwajoan Revolution In 1764, the assembled citizens of Kumasi had just made history. After a seven-year reign marked by consistent instability and capped off with the largest and most devastating military defeat that the Ashanti had yet experienced, the assembled citizens of Kumasi successfully impeached their king. Now, I think we need to pause for a sec and think about how weird that sentence is. For starters, impeaching any head of state is fairly unusual, even for an elected official. Kings being removed from power by a popular assembly is even more uncommon. The only remotely similar examples that come to mind are the arrests of Charles I in England and Louis XVI of France. However, even then, the comparison doesn't really hold up. In the case of Charles and Louis, their removal from power eventually ended in their execution, followed by decades of conflict. Additionally, each of these events was not merely a challenge to the individual impeached king, but became a referendum on the monarchy as a whole. In both cases, the monarchy as a whole was abolished shortly after their removal. And this is where the Ashanti case is kind of weird. Not only did the impeachment of Kusi Obodom not spark any abolition of the monarchy, nor did it result in any substantial conflict, but Kusi Obodom actually walked away from this impeachment alive and as a free man. While we don't know the exact details of how or if Obodom tried to fight against his impeachment, we have no accounts of any sort of rebellions or civil war following his removal from office. Today, political scientists would call Obodom's impeachment a peaceful transfer of power. And again, I really can't emphasize enough how unusual this is for the time, and for the Ashanti as well. So far, throughout the season, Every single transition of power among the Ashanti came coupled with intense violence and civil conflict. So then, why in this politically unstable environment did this impeachment of a king, which is usually something that will totally upend the political system, end up being the Ashanti's first peaceful transition of power? Well, it's hard to say for sure, but I have a few personal guesses. For starters, the army wasn't really in a place to interfere in this transfer of power. Remember, the Ashanti army had just experienced its first ever major defeat including the death of the Minister of War in battle. So, unlike during previous transfers of power among the Ashanti, the army wasn't really in a place here to play favorites or interfere at all, as they were reeling from their humiliation of their defeat at Atakbame. This might also be why Obodom was so willing to surrender his power in the first place, as the military wasn't too shambled a position from their defeat, as well as too unhappy with Obodom, to back any attempt to keep him in power. Also keep in mind that Obodom was never really that powerful of a king in the first place. Remember that he was a decentralizer, someone who ruled as more of a figurehead than a powerful voice of the Golden Stool. He had risen to power on the back of support from his regional Amanhene governors, and as a result, these Amanhene had been the true power in government, not Obodom. So, when the defeated Ashanti army limped back to Kumasi in defeat, and the Kotoko convened the assembled citizens to discuss a vote on impeachment, Obodom was powerless to do anything about it. So, he didn't. Presumably, he conceded that he would leave power, and then went off to do his own thing in obscurity, away from the prying eyes of historians. And, honestly, I think that's the perfect ending for him. 
Obodom has been, so far, definitely the strangest Ashanta Hane we've encountered, and kind of a guy that's hard to get a read on. He acquired his position of power on the back of a brutal civil war, but also instituted some genuinely good reforms to the Ashanti legal system. But you can't ignore that his reign was one of turmoil, economic downturn, and military failure. And yeah, it wasn't all his fault, but when you're the one on the golden stool, well, you have to take some responsibility. Overall, as far as Ashantahenes are concerned, he seemed like a relatively decent guy, at least for the time period, thrown into a system where he was way over his head. Honestly, I'm kind of glad that he got this kind of ending. It was clear that he had to go, but seeing a guy like Obodom get killed in a coup or executed would just feel, I don't know, bad, I guess. In fact, despite his unpopularity at the end of his rule, Obodom was still given the send-off proper to an Ashantahene. When an Ashantahene's rule concludes, normally with their death, the tradition since Osei Tutu had dictated that the king would be given a new special stool, constructed of wood polished with an ashy material to give it a unique black coloring, and then lined with gold along its edges. Then it would act as a separate vessel for the king's soul besides the golden stool in the afterlife. And, while his unpopularity ensured that he wasn't given a black stool immediately, Obodom was eventually bestowed with this prestigious gift shortly before he passed away in obscurity a few years after his impeachment. Certainly a bittersweet ending for a bittersweet ruler. Okay, so Obodom has stepped down from power. This brings up the obvious question of, well, now what? Well, the immediate answer was that one of the Kotoko members, the king of Mampong, would serve as a temporary regent while a more permanent replacement was found. And this was definitely not unusual. While it hasn't come up on the show, the Mampong Hene functioned essentially as the Ashanti's vice-king. In the event of an unexpected death or impeachment, the king of Mampong would serve as regent until a new Ashanti Hene was installed. So far, this had occurred once in Ashanti history, after the death of Osei Tutu, but given the sheer chaos that surrounded that time, the appointment of an ultimately powerless and insignificant regency didn't seem worth mentioning. So, while the temporary assumption of power by the Mamponghene was certainly not unexpected, this was the first time that such a regency had actually took power in a way that mattered. Regardless, this regency would, by design, not last very long. The bureaucrats, nobility, and assembled citizens of Kumasi set about trying to decide who would become the next Ashantehene. However, as debate raged on over who would be the next person to sit upon the golden stool, a few ground rules, so to say, were established on who could actually be considered a viable candidate. For starters, of course, any candidate for instoolment would not only have to be from the Oyoko tribe, which had ruled the Ashanti since their beginning, but also from the immediate royal family of Osei Tutu and his descendants. While the assembly had just overthrown the king, this wasn't a whole revolution or anything. The goal had been to get rid of Obodom and there was no serious desire to rock the proverbial vote too much by getting rid of the entire royal dynasty. Additionally, this new king would have to be a centralizer. That is, he had to be a visible and committed supporter of taking power away from the regional Amanhene governors and giving more power to the central government of Kumasi. After all, Obodom's alliance with the Amanhene was a large reason that he was removed from office in the first place. And, again, this meeting took place in the capital city itself, so was it any surprise that an assembly full of Kumasi bureaucrats and Kotoko members sought to centralize power? Finally, this is an election, so the candidate for Shantahene had to show the basic traits you'd like to see in an elected leader. Charisma, intelligence, persuasiveness, you know, the whole deal. With that said, one candidate emerged as the most popular choice to become the next Ashantahene. 
the titular Osei And, oh boy, he is going to do a lot with his time on the Golden Stool. If you look up the name Osei on Wikipedia, you won't find much. His page is two sentences long, essentially stating his name, the year he came to power, and the name of his successor. But, compared to the amount of times that he popped up in my research material, this brief summary is absolutely criminal. From what I can tell, Osei Kwajo has to be up there on the list of most important figures in Ashanti history, maybe second only to Osei Tutu himself. The sheer amount of things this guy did, despite ultimately ruling for only a short amount of time on the stool, is just... staggering. Despite this, though, Osei Kwajo's life before his instoolment is mostly obscure. We don't know exactly when he was born, as the stool histories of the Ashanti don't list a birth date. However, one of the few details that we know about Osei Kwajo is that he was, by happenstance, the direct grandson of Osei Tutu himself. Of course, in most patrilineal societies, this would be expected. But for the Ashanti, who pass inheritance through the father's sister, and the fact that power had been passed around in so many succession disputes and civil wars, the fact that Osei Tutu's grandson ended up on the throne anyways makes for kind of a funny coincidence. Unlike his predecessor, though, Osei Kwajo was not the type of king to just let the boat sail itself. No, he would prove to be an incredibly hands-on leader, a true reformer in the model of someone like Opokoware, someone who wasn't afraid to anger his political enemies if it meant instituting reforms that he thought were necessary. In fact, due to the unusual way in which he came to power, combined with the immense impact of his rule on Ashanti institutions, later scholars would label the era of his kingship the Kwajoan Revolution, and you know you've made an impact when people label your time in power as a revolution. If the people of Kumasi elected Kwajo to be a centralizer, then he would not disappoint when he came to power. His rule would be defined by the transformation of the Ashanti Empire from a patchwork of petty Amanhene kingships into a unitary system of government. This unitary government would, of course, be run by the Insafohene, the army of bureaucrats based out of Kumasi. However, before he would empower the national Ansafohene, Kwajo would have to reform it to improve its efficiency. After all, the current bureaucratic system was kind of a mess, essentially resembling its own little Amanhene system. Remember, the entire Ansafohene bureaucracy was originally created by Pokuware to essentially act as supervisors to the Amanhene, and they had failed tremendously at this job. Part of the reason why Opokuware's old experiment with bureaucratic government failed was because he staffed his system with ambitious men who were highly regarded within their tribal families, but were not necessarily, you know, good at their jobs. Bureaucratic positions were, in practice, usually hereditary, and Zafohene passed the position on to their nephew, resulting in these officials being more interested in building generational wealth than in doing their jobs. In short, the Insafohene often ended up just as nepotistic, corrupt, and tricky to manage as the Amanhene that they were supposed to regulate. So, the new Ashantahene Kwajo completely reworked the Insafohene system. From now on, Insafohene would not be selected exclusively from the upper echelons of society, but would be appointed by the Kotoko Council meritocratically. Bureaucratic skill, not familial connections, would determine who landed employment in the Insafohene system. Additionally, this new merit-based hiring system helped to ensure a degree of loyalty to the central government and new bureaucrats. After all, they owed their new position not to their familial connections, but to the Kotoko's decision to hire them and to the Asantehene himself. Now, I don't want to oversell just how meritocratic the system was. While, theoretically, merit was the sole factor in who would get hired, this, of course, wasn't really the case. 
Of course, the wealthy in Ashanti society, especially those at the top of tribal families, were easily able to secure more resources to educate them and better prepare them for their bureaucratic positions. So the vast, vast majority of Ensafohene continued to be selected from the same elite families. But the pretext of meritocracy and the relative loyalty and competence that it would instill in the Ensafohene would prove incredibly consequential for Ashanti history. Jobs in the bureaucracy were no longer something that the nephews of elites could secure for free. You actually had to prove your worth. Kwajo also reformed the structure of the Kotoko. At the start of his rule, the Kotoko had consisted of only six members, as established by Ose Tutu. The Ashantehene himself, the kings of Juaben, Bechuai, and Mampong, the queen mother, a role usually played by the king's mother or sometimes his older sister, and the Adumhene the royal executioner and de facto head of national law enforcement. Each of these positions played an informal role in government in addition to their official titles. We've seen that typically the Juabenhene acted as the informal minister of war, and that the Mampong-hene acted as vice-king in the case of an unexpected death or impeachment. The Bechuai-hene also usually acted as the informal financial minister or treasurer, managing the state's coffers and distributing money to the local governors. However, as part of his wider meritocratic reforms, Kwajo abolished this informal designation of responsibilities among the Kotoko. Rather, he added three new positions on the Kotoko for professional bureaucrats, picked from the most capable and Safohenes, to assist the existing Kotoko members with their duties. The first of these positions was Kontihene, roughly meaning King of the Soldiers. The Kontihene essentially replaced the Juabanhene as the Ashanti Minister for War, acting as the second highest military authority in the Ashanti Empire after only the Ashantihene himself. The Bechuahene saw his role reduced as well, with the bureaucrat known as the Gyasehene taking his position as the treasurer of the empire. Finally, Kwajo created a bureaucratic position with duties wholly unrelated to those of the Kotoko kings. Named the Kumasi Akwamuhene, this position had, in fact, nothing to do with the Akwamu people, but was rather named after the Akwamu due to the Ashanti's admiration of their government system. The position of Kumasi Akwamuhene had existed before Kwajo's rule, essentially acting as the governor of the core Ashanti territories, namely the area surrounding Kumasi itself. However, Kwajo decided that, due to the Kumasi Akumuhene governing such important territories, it was better to give him a seat on the Kotoko and establish him as part of the central Kumasi government, rather than treating him like any other Amanhene. For my fellow Americans listening, this might sound familiar to you, as our capital of Washington, D.C. is similarly not under the authority of any state governor, and is governed as a completely separate entity. Now, this reshuffling of the bureaucracy is interesting and all, but will any of it matter? This is really an important question to ask. Remember, Opokuware had tried to legislate similar reforms, only to get overthrown in a palace coup and see his policies reversed. So, how do we know something similar isn't going to happen to Kwajo? Given recent history, what stopped the Amanhene from rising in revolt again? Well, this is something that concerned Kwajo himself. If he continued his reforms that granted more power to the central government in Kumasi, the possibility of a revolt from the Amanhene in the provinces was a real concern. So, if he was going to keep the provinces in line, he had to find a way to make them feel like they had a real stake in the success of the central government, and that their needs couldn't be ignored by the Insafohene. The solution that Kwajo devised was a system of parliament. The Ashanti parliamentary system would constitute two distinct houses. The first of these houses was called the Ashanti Manchiamu, a khan for meeting of the Ashanti nation. This parliament had a fairly limited membership, but essentially included everyone of importance within the Ashanti government. Of course, the Ashantihene himself acted as the Ashanti Manchiamu's speaker, conducting the meeting. 
All of the Kotoko members were also in attendance. However, most importantly, the entirety of both the Insafohane and Amonhane also attended the meetings of the parliament. The creation of the Ashanti Manshiamu would prove incredibly important for Kwajo's goal of maintaining peace between the Amonhane and Insafohane. It provided a platform where both sides could air their complaints without anybody having to rise up in arms. If the Amonhane and their allies had concerns that their powers were being eroded too much, they could take it to the parliament. And this was an institution with real power, not just a rubber stamp for the Ashantehene. If the parliament didn't like one of the king's policies, they could veto it or force a revision before it was put into action. So, in modern terms, the Ashante Shamu acted as the upper house of the Ashanti parliament, reflecting the desires and needs of the empire's elites, but not the common folk. However, your average Ashanti peasant, farmer, or worker wasn't completely without representation. In addition to the Ashanti Manshiamu, Kwajo also organized a council known as the Mpanyimfo, roughly meaning Council of Elders. As the name implies, the Mpanyimfo was a parliament consisting of various respected elders from each city, town, and village in the Ashanti Empire. At the council, these elders were supposed to represent the interests of their constituency, and ensure that the Ashanti government did not lose touch with the needs of the common people. Again, though, I don't want to oversell the supposedly democratic nature of this institution. It is important to keep in mind that membership of the Mpanyimfo was usually hereditary, not elected. Citizens could protest the choice of an unpopular representative in the Mpanyimfo and demand their replacement, but these demands were non-binding, and they could be easily ignored by those in power. Still, though, these local representatives were more accountable to their constituents than the central government more generally. While certainly not democratic, the Mpanyimfo shows a serious desire on the part of Kwajo not to overlook the needs of the empire's local communities. While Kwajo's reforms didn't make the Ashanti system democratic per se, they certainly did make it today what we'd call a constitutional monarchy. The king was bound by laws, limited in power, and forced to obtain the approval of not only his ministers, but parliamentary bodies as well. And again, these parliamentary bodies were no rubber stamps. They actually mattered. Throughout the rest of Ashanti history, these institutions will prove to be serious limits on the Ashantehene's power, often forcing revisions or outright scrapping royal policies. With that said, the Ashanti system of government certainly changed a lot under Osekwajo's rule. However, while we've devoted an entire episode to discussing Osekwajo's domestic reforms to the Ashanti civic system, there have been a couple areas of policy that we've largely ignored, two areas of government that are attached at the hip management of the economy, and management of foreign policy. And in these areas of his rule, the revolutionary Ashantehene Ose Kwacho will, of course, continue to defy expectations. Join us next episode as we learn about how Ose Kwacho not only changed how the Ashanti managed their own government, but also instituted new, unorthodox ways for the Ashanti to wage war, manage their finances, and conduct diplomacy. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sean Burke, Sarah Mpenza, and Tobias Tungland, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.